All right, we are back. It was noted uh, yesterday that uh, the sun may be erping up a large coronal mass injection, which may cause some interference here on planet Earth with some of our electronics, which I'd like to add is one major reason I just don't think doing everything on the Internet is at all smart. We've talked about the Carrington event of 1859 in this program, where one of the largest um, events on the sun in the last thousand years disrupted what electronics there were on planet Earth. At that time, about all there was were telegraph lines. But uh, this event, the solar flare, induced so many currents in the wires that had been laid out that fires were started and um, that uh, the electronics were fried and and fires were actually started. Well, it turns out that um, even bigger events have taken place in the not-that-distant past and will happen again. And when they do, our electronics are probably going to be in trouble. Piece in New Scientist, August 10th issue, titled Starburst by Stuart Clark, um, talks about uh, a radiation blast in medieval times that we should take note of. Notice the piece. Something with an almost unimaginable power hit Earth in AD 775. Europe was in the grip of the Dark Ages, yet the skies were alight. A 13th century English chronicle, Roger of Wendover, noted fiery and fearful signs were seen in the heavens after sunset, and serpents appeared in Sussex as if they were sprung out of the ground to the astonishment of all. What's he referring to? Probably prominent aurora displays, which do look like snakes as they writhe in the sky. We don't need descriptions to know that something cataclysmic took place in the solar system that year. A look at tree rings tells the tale. They reveal that uh, a supremely powerful blast of radiation struck our atmosphere. And uh, (laughs) Peace notes that uh, if that were to happen today, satellites would fry, power stations would melt, we would be without communications and power probably for years. The effects in the medieval world were slight. And we probably would have missed them completely had it not been for Fusa Miyake of Nagoya University in Japan and her colleagues that were looking for evidence of large ancient radiation storms in tree rings from two long-lived Japanese cedars. They were looking for raised levels of carbon-14, which is the isotope created when energetic particles from space strike our atmosphere. They found a startling spike in carbon-14 levels around the year AD 775. In other words, it was a radiation storm. Researchers in Europe read this paper and took a look at some ancient German oak trees and confirmed the results. Something weird happened in AD 775. And it was thought at first, based on estimates, that it must have been something different than a solar flare because of the energy levels involved. When they redid the math and realized that uh, if the if the event was pointed right at the Earth, you you need energy levels a hundred times less. But the piece notes, no one should think this makes the cataclysm any less impressive. It is at least 20 times bigger than the biggest solar storm ever recorded. That was the Carrington event of 1859. Said researchers, we can absolutely say that what happened then was bigger than Carrington. It was a hundred times bigger than any flare of the last century. The article goes on to speculate that perhaps comets striking the sun might have something to do with uh, this phenomenon. That's still a work in progress. 
as is, for that matter, the study of solar flares and coronal mass injections and how those interact. Notes the piece. The trouble is no two coronal mass injections are the same. Some have high energy but weak magnetic fields, which cause little damage to infrastructure. Others have strong magnetic fields but weak energy. Notes that those are the ones we should worry about. Because the Carrington event of 1859 battered our magnetic field and induced electricity and telegraph lines, but didn't cause any change in carbon-14 in our atmosphere. Conversely, a coronal mass injection in 1956 that had a lot of high-energy particles caused little disruption to our communication systems. And back in 1989, when Hydro-Quebec's power grid got knocked out by a coronal mass injection, it wasn't even the one with the highest energy of the year. This is some research area that we need to find out more about. In the meantime, putting all of our eggs in one basket on the internet, I'm just thinking it's not a great idea. All right, returning to the program at this juncture is someone we talked about at the top of the show, our old pal Donald Rose from Southern California, purveyor of... NovelTyRecord.com. <laughs> well, welcome back. Let's, uh, let's do a few minutes. It was kind of fun last time. And sure. I know that the song I want to start you off with is uh, one that people of a certain age will remember quite well, having seen it debut on national television. Tiptoe Through the Tulips, as performed by Tiny Tim. Yes, I remember it very well. I would say a lot of people might call it like an epitome of a novelty record, but interesting history of the song was recorded, and it actually went to the top of the, the song charts in 1929. So that's pretty old. Yeah. It was re-recorded over the years. It was used in the first Looney Tunes cartoon ever around 1930. And then what happened was the song was revived by a rock group called the Humane Society in 1967. I think that might have been why. It was sort of getting repopularized. That might have been why Tiny Tim decided to use it. And that was his first big breakout. His version <laughs> went to number 17. Very strange falsetto singing, long-haired guy who wound up getting married on The Tonight Show later in his career. Quite, quite a strange person. According to Wikipedia, his manager, George King, booked him at a club that favored acts by performers that were, quote, short in stature, uh, unquote. So that's why we got the name Tiny Tim. It, it wasn't really his idea. It was his manager's idea, and I guess it stuck. If those, for those who have not heard it, Mr. McMillan. And you know, let's face it, we don't hear enough uh, ukulele music. <laughs> we really don't, or even ukulele music for that matter. No, we don't. And, and, and again, that's what makes it novelty. You know, it's got ukulele, it's got a falsetto voice, it's got a guy with an unusual name, you know, it's got Dickens, it, it's got, you know, pretty much, and it's, it's a, that's like epitome of a novelty song. All right, well, another one that I'm sure will qualify by anybody's standards of a novelty song would be uh, a, a, the CB classic by... Quote, C.W. McCall, Convoy. Yes, Convoy, a 1975 song performed by C.W. McCall, and the guy's real name was Bill Freeze, but it went to number one. This I couldn't believe when I read this. I didn't realize it was number one, not only on the pop charts, but on the country charts, <laughs> and number one in Canada. And it led to a film three years later directed by Sam Peckinpah called Convoy. So it was quite the hit. 
the thing that really makes it the novelty hit, besides the fact of that unusual voice, very low, kind of like he's talking the song, but the CB slang, you know, all it's almost right. like he encapsulates the whole CB craze in one song, and all the different words, the Smokies, the Bears, they even had a bear in the air. <laughs> You know, the whole, the hammer down, we ain't going to pay no toll, you know. The whole thing, all the slang is what made it, I think. All right, Mr. McMillan, please. It was the dark of the moon on the 6th of June in a Kenworth pulling logs. Cab over Pete with a reefer on and a Jimmy hauling hogs. We is heading for Bear on I-10, about a mile out of Shaky Town. I says, Pigpen, this here's a rubber duck, and I'm about to put the hammer down. Well, Don, that is a goofy song, but I don't know if it's just hard to dislike it for some reason. It's hard to dislike it, and it's got a great chorus. I think the chorus really <laughs> kicks it over the top to, to being a hit. I think without that, it would have just been another one of these talky, you know, you're talking through the lyrics kind of song. The right piece of music for the right time. Uh, but uh, moving forward in time to the, the 1980s, of course, video games were huge. And, and one song that I think both of us find irresistible is... Uh, uh, one titled Pac-Man Fever. Yeah, another song I, I actually find pretty catchy, and it was part of a uh, concept album in 82, and it was all like songs about video games. This was the one that broke through. The title, I guess you could say, is a parody of Cat Scratch Fever, the Ted Nugent song. Uh, Pac-Man Fever, you know, it, it did really well. It was released as a single in late 81, went to top 10 on the charts. It actually sold... By 2008, 2.5 million copies, which is kind of amazing to, to me to find that out. But Pac-Man Fever lives, and uh, All right, still well, a great song. Let's reintroduce it to our audience. I got a pocket full of quarters, and I'm headed to the arcade. I don't have a lot of money, but I'm bringing everything I made. I got a callus on my finger, and my shoulder's You know, the horrible part about this, Don, is that a lot of our listeners are, are not going to know what Pac-Man even is. That's, that's, that's a terrifying thing. Now, our next selection here I know crosses generations because uh, my, my nephew sent me this one <laughs> about a year ago. Uh, he's, he's tw- at the time, I guess he was 22, and, and he, he thought this was just a classic beyond belief, and I think you and I would agree with him that uh, there's, nothing, there's nothing quite like William Shatner's cover of Elton John's Rocket Man. I have to agree, Doug. I can't <laughs> believe you haven't played this up till now. Yeah, it's a, it's a great song. Um, only because, well, either you love Shatner or you hate him. A lot of people can't stand the way he, you know, like sings, if you want to call it singing. But, you know, that's, you could argue that's his style. And again, that's what makes it a novelty song. It's an unusual style of talking through songs. <laughs> and that's sort of his, his shtick, you know. And actually on YouTube, if you've got to go to YouTube and... Yes. I second the motion. Yes, you have to go see. The, you have to go see what's on YouTube here. This is this is it's spectacular. 
It, it's it's uh, in 1978 in January. Uh, they they aired the Science Fiction Film Awards. Actually, it's called the Saturn Awards, but they called it the Science Fiction Film Awards. And the co-writer of Rocket Man, Bernie Taupin, introduces William Shatner. He does his spoken word interpretation of the song, and they use chroma key to to have three Shatners at once. You know, it's supposed to be representing the different sides of the character. Now you could you know you're either going to call it genius or the ultimate schlocky idiocy, but. Uh, it, it's a classic. You got to check it out. But well, for my money, he's, he's smoking a cigarette with a ruffled shirt. And it just—it's <laughs> worth seeing just for that, Mister McMillan. I think it's going to be a long, long time. The touchdown brings me around again to find I'm not the man they think I am at home. No, 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 no. I'm a rocket man. Rocket man. Burning out his fuse up here alone. Mars ain't the kind of place to raise your kids. In fact, it's cold as hell. You know, I, I do want to say in William Shatner's defense, I, I think you were there when they did a presentation. That's how we, we met Norman Lloyd. Uh, and, and Ray Bradbury was there. Norman Corn was there. They were doing Leviathan at, at a yep. presentation at Los Angeles. Shatner was up on stage, and I, I got to say, I thought he was pretty good. Yeah, I, I thought he was too, you know. Uh, you know, you could criticize the guy. He's, he's been, you know, ridiculed and stuff. But I, I think it's just, you know, I think he has a very good sense of what he is. And he plays it to effect, and he could also do serious acting still, as as evidenced by that uh, Leviathan uh, reading that we saw. I, I think he knows what he's doing. People, some people say he doesn't when he does stuff like Rocket Man. All right, our final item, and I know someone composed a list somewhere out there of great novelty songs, and this one came yeah. in at numero uno. And I think uh, this this might just be the quintessential novelty tune. We're referring, of course, to Napoleon the Fourteenth's. They're coming to take me away, ha ha. Yeah, don't forget the ha ha. Uh, well, you know, this really, yeah, it does epitomize a novelty record. Think about it. Every single thing about it. The title is strange. <laughs> the, the, the name of the guy is using a pseudonym that's strange. Um, it uses like a, a voice effect, a variable frequency oscillator effect. And the, the guy, his, his real name is Jerry Samuels. He was a recording engineer, and he use this device to alter the pitch of the recording without changing the tempo. Now you can do it with software really easy, but yeah. back then, yeah. I'm sure it was a new thing. So he decided, ah, you know, I'm going to use this technique, which is kind of similar to, uh, you know, uh, Ross uh, Bagdasarian, who, better known as David Seville, did the Chipmunk song. You know, he also used, you know, got into the whole changing the, the pitch of your voice, sure. uh, you know, things. And also, it's based on an old Scottish tune, by the way, called The Campbells Are Coming. You can find it on YouTube. But all right. It's sort of got all these different elements to it, a strange storyline. And check this out, the B-side, <laughs> if you ever happen to notice, look at the B-side. The title looks like it's an alien language. It's actually, they're coming to take me away, haha, in reverse. See, it's the reverse side of the disc, and the title is in reverse. All right, without further ado, let's, let's hit the number one, according to some lists, novelty record of all time. Remember when you ran away and I got on my knees and begged you not to leave because I go berserk? Well, you left me anyhow and then the days got worse and worse and now you see I've gone completely out of my mind. And 
They're coming to take me away, haha. They're coming to take me away, ho ho, hee hee, haha. To the funny farm where life is beautiful all the time, and I'll be happy to see those nice young men in their clean white coats. You know, I, I remember when this was a hit back when I was a boy, and what I remember was it came out as number 30 on the charts. The next week it went to number 29. The yeah. next week it went to number six. The next week it went to number five. It was headed for number one, except in week number five, it disappeared. It went it went off the charts. It, it, it peaked at number three on the Billboard Hot 100, and I don't know. Yeah, you would think it would go to number one. No, 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 Don. The story I heard, the, the contemporaneous story that was, to, that was talked about by We Kids, was that the mental health authorities apparently stepped in because people who were paranoid were hearing this song about they're coming to take me away and having terrible reactions to it. So they basically uh, pleaded with the music industry just to stop this thing, yank it, pull it off the air. And yeah, you know, I'm, I'm reading about this now, and it says it has the distinction of being the song to drop the furthest within the top 40 in a single week. It charted for five weeks in 1966, peaked at number three. They, they yanked the song fearing the reaction from people who might think of the song as ridiculing people that were mentally ill. So Well, and, yeah. the, and the alternative explanation was people who were mentally ill really were going a bit off. So I don't know where the truth lies. Definitely a classic novelty song, and not surprising that it's number one on many lists. I don't know if I would put it number one, but definitely up there. All right. Well, Don, always a pleasure. Let's come and do this again next month sometime or the month after, because it's kind of fun. I would love that very much. Yes. <laughs> All right. Bring me up. Okay. Bye-bye. That does it for our show, which was produced by Edward McMillan. This has been Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Before we go, we want to just remind you one more time, dear listeners, that you may want to check out America's best political satirist, Will Durst, here in Sacramento for an exclusive presentation in conjunction with the anniversary of the Humor Times. That's tomorrow, Friday, August 23rd, 7 p.m. at the 24th Street Theater. For more information, you can look up the Humor Times or Will Durst uh, on the web. You know what to do. Hopefully we'll see you there. Anyway, we'll see you next week. And they're coming to take me away, ha-ha. They're coming to take me away, ho-ho, hee-hee, ha-ha. To the funny farm where life is beautiful all the time. And I'll be happy to see those nice young men in their clean white coats. And they're coming to take me away, ha-ha. To the happy home with trees and flowers and chirping birds and basket weavers who sit and smile and twiddle their thumbs and toes. And they're coming.